Radio for a really great future. We're talking real money. Well, apparently I have not been doing enough podcasts lately, given that I've been taking Mondays off. And this Monday was, you know, what we just had was a holiday. So I'm only really doing one new Get Your Questions Answered podcast. And that means that the questions have been piling up. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I appreciate it so much. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to devote the next few podcasts to answering questions. I'm going to get some of the audio questions in today, those that were sent in via TalkingRealMoney.com on the contact form using the mic button, and those that were called in to 855-935-TALK. Then, tomorrow on the live show, when we don't have a call, uh, Tom and I are going to answer some of those written questions that have come in. So we'll get these questions covered over the next few podcasts so we can get caught up and you can keep sending your questions in by calling them in to 855-935-TALK or by typing them up at TalkingRealMoney.com on the contact form or recording them at TalkingRealMoney.com with the little mic button so you don't even have to use a phone. You can just use your computer, kind of like I'm doing right now, recording on the computer. So send those questions in, and let's get going right now with a, uh, a higher quality call. Given that over 30% of the S&P 500's revenue comes from international sources, why do you feel that you need such a heavy weight in international uh, stock indexes? Great question. I've heard it uh, several times. It's it's not the correct argument, though. It's not about earnings. It's about placement in the world markets because they don't always move in lockstep. And so when you're buying U.S. companies, even though, even though they might have foreign earnings, you're still getting the, the, the fluctuations of the U.S. market. And we've seen dramatic differences over time between U.S. and foreign markets. As a matter of fact, foreign markets bailed investors out between 2000 and 2010 when the U.S. markets, particularly the large blue chip growth markets in the U.S., did horribly. The S&P 500 lost money over 10 years between 2000 and the end of 2009, whereas a globally diversified portfolio like we suggest returned, I don't know, somewhere in the 7% range or something crazy like that per year, not total, per year. Um, you know, of course, that, that was then. We don't know what the future is going to bring. But you want to have that overseas exposure so that you own the global markets. And remember, the obverse is true. Uh, you, you International companies make a lot of their money in the U.S. Toyota, Nissan, Siemens, Volkswagen. You know, these are, these are foreign. Nestle. These are foreign companies who make a good deal of their money here. And so you're not participating in their U.S. earnings. So you should invest globally. Now let's go to a call from 855-935-TALK, somebody who called it in on the old-fashioned telephonic system. Hi, uh, my name is Mario. I'm calling from Kansas. Uh, I invested my Roth IRA in Vanguard Target Date Fund 2045. I'm four years old. I'm thinking to change my investment portfolio to two or three funds. I'm thinking about uh, Vanguard Total Stocks and Vanguard Total Bonds. 
Can I have your opinion on that? Thank you so much. Bye. One of the biggest reasons that people own the target date funds, like the Vanguard 2045, is to make the process simpler. Because, in essence, what you have with the Vanguard Target 2045 is very similar to what you're thinking about moving into, except they do the rebalancing for you based on your age, not really based on your risk tolerance. Although, I would imagine that the 2045 is pretty close to where you'd want to be anyway, because 90% of that portfolio is in the total stock market funds. However, the uh, they're a little more, they're a little heavier weighted, just a little, to the U.S. So it's the U.S. fund and the international fund, along with U.S. bonds and international bonds. So it, they do have a mix, but only 10% of the portfolio is in bonds. I have to tell you. Unless there's some abiding reason for making the change, I'd be really tempted to just stick with the simplicity of the 2045 fund. It's really well diversified. It's very, very cheap. And it's just easier. And investing should, at least in the beginning, be really, really easy because you got enough going on in life without worrying about rebalancing your portfolio, where to put your money. I think people spend, waste way too much of their lives worrying about investing when they really should be worrying about their job and their family and the things they love and make investing a, a much simpler, straightforward, automatic process. So, Either way, you're going to be fine, but I'd be tempted just to hang out doing what you're doing. And thanks for the call. I appreciate it. To 855-935-TALK, 855-935-8255. And remember, tomorrow, Saturday, I'm, I'm recording this on Friday, and then that means the next day will be Saturday. And Saturdays are when we do the show live so that you can call in between 3 and 5 Eastern at that same number, 855-935-TALK. And we'll talk to you live instead of you leaving a message. And now it's time for yet another question that was sent in via audio, but on our website at TalkingRealMoney.com on the contact form. Hey, Tom and Don. This is Mike calling from Colorado. Got a quick question for you guys. You guys have helped me in the past, and I do love your show. So my question is, I adhere to Paul Merriman's um, buy and hold strategy. And one of the funds that he had suggested, and I think he since changed it, was the uh, Vanguard Intermediate Term, short, or I'm sorry, Short Term Investment Grade Bond Fund, VFSUX. I don't really like those letters, but that's what it is. VF sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my question. I have $400,000 that just matured under an Ally two-year CD. And I was getting a great rate. I think it was 2.2%. But as you know, rates have dramatically gone down. When I go to bankrate.com, there's nothing even close that uh, I can lock up that money. And I should say I'm going to need the money in about a year for purchase of a house. So I want to have it somewhat liquid. What I was thinking of doing, and I've gone to Bogleheads and kind of looked at the pros and cons, but what is your thought about parking that $400,000 in the VFSUX fund, uh, the bond fund, that's got a 1.23% 30-day yield? And I just thought taking a little added risk um, for that additional interest 
might pay off. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm just wanting your thoughts on that. Anyway, I appreciate your feedback on that question. What to do with the four hundred thousand um, dollars, or do I just leave it in a an ally savings account, making I think it's 0.9 percent, something of that nature. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Ah, uh, here we go. The risk return trade off. There's a trade off, and it's pretty much absolute. There's no trick. If you want to make more, you're going to take a little more risk. And I'll give you an example of the risk, although it's not ridiculous. Uh, back in March, on March 6th, between March 6th and March, I think it was like the 24th, that fund lost six-tenths of 1% of its value, which for a fund like that is pretty substantial. It was... At the time, probably a third of its yield. Yeah, about right. Today it'd be about a quarter of its yield. It doesn't, it, it's rarely done that, but it can happen. There have been little dips along the way. And in a bond fund, you have bonds with set maturities. If rates were to spike way up, the value of those bonds would pretty quickly decline. And if you had to get out right then, you could suffer a loss. Would that loss likely be substantial? No, because they're short-term bonds and they're quickly replacing those bonds with the new higher-yielding bonds in the portfolio, but you could take a bit of a hit. So it's not like a bank account where there is no fluctuation in the value. And that's what the trade-off is. So you make four-tenths of a percent more or whatever the number is when you get in. But you have to take the risk that you could lose that or even a little more than that, that excess yield. But otherwise, no, I'm good with, uh, with the fund. Yeah, yeah, and, and you, you did make me laugh. <laughs> and now it's time to take another question that was sent in at TalkingRealMoney.com on the contact form by somebody who pushed the mic button, just like this. Hi, Don and Tom. Absolutely love your podcast and don't miss a single episode. I have a 529 question. I have had a 529 plan with Vanguard for the last few years, and I've been quite pleased with that, but I've heard you guys mention and recommend the Utah 529 plan. So I was hoping to get your comments on the Vanguard 529 plan and maybe contrast that with the Utah one. I'm trying to decide if I should move the plan from Vanguard, which is based in Nevada, to the Utah plan. Thanks so much for your help. Appreciate all your honest advice. Take care, guys. That's another plan we like a lot. Oh, and by the way, thanks for being another every episoder. We appreciate that. Make sure you tell all your friends to become every episoders too, or maybe just every other episoders. The two plans, the Nevada and the Utah, both use Vanguard. Both have age-based options. Both are dirt cheap. And I do mean dirt cheap. The fees are almost identical. As a matter of fact, in some cases, they are identical. There are a couple of options at uh, in the Utah plan that are, get this, about one one-hundredth of one percent higher. So... If you're, you're you're fine. You're fine. It's just that we we we've been 
suggesting the Utah plan for so long, and, and the nice thing about the Utah plan is it has a lot of options, more options than through the Vanguard plan, but, but, but that's not that important. The fees on both of them are ridiculously low. They're both fine products. They're both great programs. Uh, I don't see that there's any need to make any changes whatsoever. You're in a program that's about as good as they get. Thanks for your question. I really appreciate it. Let's do another one from the same source. Hi, Tom and Don. This is Sandra. I recently discovered your show after you're featured on a Stacking Benjamins podcast. Since then, I've been a regular listener. Thanks very much. I have a question about resident rule changes for your retirement accounts. I'm a retiree, not yet drawing Social Security because I haven't reached full retirement age. I have a pension a retirement account, and a mix of equities, ETFs, and funds that I oversee directly. The other 50% of my assets are held in a non-retirement investment account, actively managed by a fee-only fiduciary advisor charging 1%. I mostly rely on a long-term value stock buy-and-hold strategy for the investments I manage directly. I noticed that recently rule changes are proposed for guidelines established by the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. My understanding is that DOL claims this will expand retiree choices by opening retirement accounts to private equity investments. Various salespeople have pitched such investments to me in the past since I am technically a qualified institutional investor. I avoid them because I don't like their typical high-risk, high-volatility, steep management fees, and opaque financial disclosures. Forbes says that these changes basically throw 401k investors to the wolves. Would you please discuss how average investors can determine if plan managers have packed private equity investments into their retirement funds, especially given the recent balderization of fiduciary rules? How do we evaluate applicable costs and risks to our accounts, given the typical lack of transparency for private equity investments? I love your show. Thank you for everything you're doing for the public. And thank you for listening and for the lovely comments. Now, let's see. You seem to have a pretty good handle on what you're doing, particularly with your retirement accounts. Now, I'm going to take issue with an actively managed fiduciary account because I'd sure like to see how this person is actively managing your account. And this kind of an advisor would be the kind of advisor that I'd worry might consider private equity because they tend to like the hot hands and the, the huge potential. But that's not why you're investing. You're investing for a retirement that is here, basically. It's here. You can't play hot hands. You can't play games with your money. You have to build a portfolio that is reasonably safe within your tolerance for risk. And I don't care how sophisticated you might be or qualified you might be as an investor. Skip private equity entirely. Forbes is right. This is a horrible mistake 
for retirement investors. There is going to be a ton of money lost because of the opacity, because of the high fees, because of the double dealing that is bound to occur. You just steer clear of them. And as for your actively managed account, I would love to hear someday just how this person actively manages, what kind of products they use. I mean, there, there may be something good, but I would rather see you pay probably a little less. It sounds like you have plenty of money. And if you're paying 1% and you're over a million dollars, you're paying way too much, way too much. At a million dollars, you should get break points from fee-only advisors down to half a percent. So um, you shouldn't be paying one if you're if you're up there, uh, particularly if your other accounts are, are, are some of those who are with the same people, or they maybe they should be. Get your fees down. But um, I'm not a big fan of active management. I don't see any evidence it works long-term, none, and consistently. Uh, otherwise, though, sticking with your long-term, value tilt, low-cost, mutual funds, index products, passive investments, I believe that's the smart way to go. You pay less and you're going to have a higher level of security in that you don't have volatility. Oh, and that's the other thing about private equity. Private equity has something that a portfolio that's broadly diversified globally does not have, cannot have, and that is the risk of total loss. That's just too much risk for anybody, I believe. Anybody. It's gambling, in other words. Thanks for the very sweet call. I appreciate it. And let's go, or the... I guess it wasn't a call. It was a recorded message. <laughs> Let's go to another one of those recorded messages. Hey, Tom and Don. My question is in regards to bond funds. Uh, just curious how bond funds that are comprised of a variety of different treasury bills, municipal bonds, et cetera, et cetera, are capable of earning up to, in some ways this year, 8 or 10% year to date, even though the bonds that comprise them don't have anywhere near those yields. I've been researching it a little bit, but I'd love to see if you guys can explain it in a simple way that may help others and myself feel a little bit more comfortable having bond funds in their overall portfolio because they aren't just limited to the rates of the bonds that comprise them. Let me know if I'm thinking about this completely wrong. Love the show. Thanks. I think this will make a lot more sense to everybody if we define terminology. There's a big difference between yield, that's the income stream from the bonds, and total return. That's a combination of the income stream and changes in the value of the bonds. This is where it gets a little confusing. Bonds do fluctuate in value, and they fluctuate more the longer their maturity. So 30-year bonds can fluctuate a lot. Uh, One-year treasuries barely move. The reason you're seeing 6 and 7 and 8% total returns from some bond funds is because something weird has been happening with our economy for a very long time. Rates haven't stopped falling, except for little brief periods, for <laughs> over a decade. And you know, you've heard it from all the, the experts out there with air quotes around them that, well, rates just can't stay low forever. Well, apparently they can stay low for a very, very long time and even go lower than anybody ever thought they'd go. And they could even go into negative. And let me tell you, if rates go negative, 
what's going to happen to any bond that exists today that has a positive yield? Its value is going to go up because you're willing to pay extra just to get some money from your bonds. And that's what you're seeing. You're seeing this inverse relationship between interest rates and bond values. So when interest rates fall, bond values rise. And then there's the opposite side of that coin. When interest rates start rising again, which they're likely to do someday, I'm not going to predict when, because I don't like looking like a fool. When they eventually rise, if they eventually rise, probably will, the value of the bonds is going to go down. So let's say you've got a bond today that's yielding 1.5% and rates shoot up in the near future. Well, that positive 8% return you may have seen in the past could turn into a negative 8% total return. So it can go the other way on you too. Never, ever, ever look at total returns for bonds. Bonds should fulfill an important purpose in your portfolio, but not the one you might think. It's not to make you money. It's to keep you from losing a lot of money. And that's why we go with short intermediate bonds, because they don't have the wild volatility from interest rate swings. And we want high quality, generally governments, because you don't have default risk. We're looking for safety from the bonds. We want to let the stocks do what stocks have done best for almost a century, and that is make you money. That's where you should make your money because stocks have shown consistent positive returns. The only reason bonds have shown consistent positive returns over and above their yield is because interest rates have been falling for decades overall. Don't expect positive returns from bonds in the future, except from the interest paid, the yield. Thank you so much for uh, your question. And I think I'm going to sneak one more in just because we have so many. My husband is 78 and I'm 73. We have some money in CDs because we don't want to lose it. So we don't know what to do. Uh, the money is about, oh, 400000 We don't have any bills but we don't want to lose the money. So could you help us? We don't know whether to continue with CDs or what to do. Thanks for the question. I understand your issue. Right now, interest rates are terrible and everybody wants to make more money. However, as I mentioned earlier, there is a risk-return trade-off. You can't make more without taking more risk. You just can't. Now, you could make a little more by taking a little more risk, but my guess is if you saw your portfolio go down in value a little bit, you might get very concerned and and then possibly sell it and put yourself in worse shape. So I think given your situation, it doesn't sound like you need the money. As you said, you don't have any bills. Uh, that Why stretch? Why not just stay safe? But I would suggest you consider laddering your CDs. And that means splitting the money up in five pieces, say $80,000 each, and putting that money in five different certificates of deposit. It won't make much difference today, but it might down the road when, uh, when eventually interest rates start sneaking up again. What a ladder does is it gives you a rate that 
can reflect a, 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 something closer to the market and gives you some potential down the road. For example, if you're just in a one-year CD, then you're kind of taking a gamble every year on on if rates go lower, you're going to get in at an even lower rate. And don't say they can't because they have. So if you built a five-year ladder, you'd have one-year CDs, two, three, four, and five. And then in a year, when those one-year CDs come due, you buy a five-year CD at whatever the prevailing rate is. If your rates got, have gone down, well, that's okay. You've got uh, substantial. You've got eighty percent of your portfolio that's still earning the higher rates from before. If rates go up, well, great. Twenty percent of your portfolio is now going to start earning money at the higher rates. And go online to shop for the best rates. You don't have to stay in town. Uh, you you can look all over the country because you can send the money electronically almost anywhere with great ease. So that's what I would consider doing, laddering those CDs out and staying absolutely safe because you have that FDIC insurance so you can't lose money, period. Thank you very much. Thank you all for your questions. They're all wonderful. We love hearing from you. We're going to catch up on these. We promise we're going to do a bunch of the written questions tomorrow in the live show that uh, you can call at 855-935-TALK. And remember, if you have one of those more complex questions, the kind that, uh, you know, like the woman with the very complex portfolio, here's an absolute promise to you. Our firm, Vestory, will help you, and we will do all we can do within an hour or so to help you for free. Really provide help, not just say, oh, well, you know, if you become a client, we'll, we'll talk about it. No, that's not the way we work. We'll help you because we found that the best way to get clients is to help everybody, everybody, because those people that we've helped and didn't charge anything have friends who really need an advisor and we get a lot of recommendations that way. So a lot of referrals. So please Get in touch with one of our advisors if you need more complex help. It's really easy to do. You either call 800-386-3004 and somebody will answer 24-7 or you go online to Vestory, V-E-S-T-O-R-Y.com. Down at the bottom of the page, you can just pick a date and a time and set up an appointment on the phone or via Zoom or in person even. We've we got our office clean. Everybody's got masks and we social distance uh, if you're in the Seattle area. To, uh, to help you through your problems. Thanks for listening. Thanks for asking your questions. Thanks for telling your friends. You're the best audience anybody could have. Glad you're out there. Thanks for listening. I'm Don McDonough. Talking real money. We hope you realize that the information provided on Talking Real Money is for educational and hopefully enjoyable purposes only. Providing personalized financial planning or investing advice takes time, so please consult with a really good fee-only fiduciary investment, tax, or legal advisor. We know a good one. Investing must always involve risk. In other words, you can and probably will lose money at times. Also, as much as you want it, no one can accurately and consistently predict the future. So past performance doesn't tell you a darn thing about what the future will bring. Unlike many other programs that say something similar, Talking Real Money is not trying to get you to buy or sell any financial products or securities. Instead, the program is provided as a public service by Vestry, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Thanks for listening, and please visit TalkingRealMoney.com for more information and disclosures. Are we done now?